Over the last four weeks, we have told the story of Tyrion, a slave who escaped from prison and embarked on a journey toward the royal homeland. There, he hopes to be reunited with long-lost family members and experience the world's greatest Christmas celebration. He has endured enormous hardship on this dangerous adventure. Last week, he was separated from his guard, Acker, and forced to navigate alone through the dizzying trails and suffocating vines, threatening thorns of the thicket. There he nearly died and saw his wit, resilience, and faith tested to the breaking point. Tyrion emerged from the maze after an exhausting struggle to see a breathtaking sight. Just ahead of him at the end of the path was a magnificent 200-foot Christmas tree known as the King's Evergreen. The limbs were heavy with hundreds of ripened fruit, apples, pears, plums, peaches, oranges, a vision of color and variety. As he reached to pick a piece from the tree, a friendly voice greeted him. Hello! Welcome to the royal homeland. Tyrion couldn't tell where the mysterious voice was coming from. Uh, hi, he said. Who's there? Up here. Tyrion looked up about 30 feet into the limbs of the tree and saw a man hanging there waving. He had a canvas bag slung around his neck filled to the brim with picked fruit. He nimbly swung down from the limb and bounced down with a soft thud in front of Tyrion. Wow, you sure look a sight. The man looked concerned as he stepped toward the teen. By the looks of all those cuts and scrapes, you've been traveling through the thicket. <laughs> yes, sir. I didn't know if I was going to make it here alive. I've been traveling for the longest time, trying to get to the royal homeland for the Christmas celebration. As he spoke the last sentence... A wave of exhaustion overtook him, and Tyrion collapsed to one knee. The man offered a ripe plum. Eat this. It'll help. Tyrion quickly ate it and noticed a new vigor coursing through his system. He stood up to shake the stranger's hand. My name is Sargon, but most folks just call me the Harvester. And let me guess, your name is Tyrion. Uh, yes. And I bet you've been traveling with a tough guy named Acker. Yes, I, I have, but, but how did you know Acker's that... my brother. We've been expecting you. I'm so glad you finally got here. And there's some people just over the hill that'll also be thrilled to know that you made it. The harvester steered him up a small slope toward an overlook. Tyrion's eyes widened as he saw a large open gate, bracketing a road paved with smooth stones. The avenue pointed toward a sparkling collective of homes and buildings, the structures were accented with artistic hedgerows, meticulous flower beds, and colorful Christmas banners. Stunning as they were, these structures paled in comparison to the majestic castle that sat on the city square. Tyrion whispered to Sargon, This has got to be a dream. It's real, but you ain't seen nothing yet. Come on. As they entered the city, Tyrion and Sargon were met by friendly townspeople scurrying from task to task, clearly preparing for the big party. Everyone knew Sargon and greeted him warmly. Many even knew Tyrion by name, which became less and less shocking with each interaction. They were almost at the castle bridge when Sargon stopped them at a small store with a changing room. He handed a bag to Tyrion. Thought you might like a change of clothes. The teen ducked into the walk-in, donned the new outfit, and saw himself in a mirror. He expected to see the reflection of a shy young boy, but instead was shocked to see a lean and confident man. The clothes were tailored perfectly to his frame, and he couldn't help but smile with disbelief. He emerged to see Sargon waving at someone off in the distance. A hundred yards away, a runner was sprinting their direction. His features were shadowed by the towering castle, but Tyrion saw a toothy grin plastered on the young man's face. He was whooping as he approached. The figure closed in on them in a blur, and Tyrion felt himself enveloped into the crunch of a joyful bear hug. The jostling was accompanied by rolls of laughter. Another figure dashed into the scene. A young woman with long brown hair threw herself into the dog pile. She screamed merrily. Tyrion! Tyrion! It's you! It's the, you! The two hugged him relentlessly, tears flowing down their cheeks. Tyrion stared at their faces like a bolt. His long-forgotten brother and sister came into focus. Dad, Lorena! He returned their hugs gleefully, collecting them in his arms. 
the trio chatted warmly until the clanging of a distant bell rang out six chimes. Sargon nudged them back toward the gate. It's almost time for the party. They'd taken only a few steps when it dawned on Tyrion that their reunion was lacking a member. Where's my father? The harvester replied. He's working at the castle, making final preparations for the king's party. But he can't wait to see you, Lorena interjected. To this point, Tyrion thought he'd seen his share of remarkable sights. But when the doors to the castle swung open, his jaw dropped. None of Acker's descriptions or the wildest dreams of his imagination could have prepared the newcomer for the images of the Christmas celebration. Red, green, and gold were everywhere. A kaleidoscope of light streamed in through stained glass windows. The beams of sun created speckled stars and diamond shapes that danced in the air. The room was enchanted with all forms of fantastic decorations. Ribbons, lanterns, bows. Candles, flowers, fountains. Paintings, sculptures. Everywhere he turned he saw a more beautiful scene than before. Laughter, singing, and lively music tickled his ears. The aroma of gourmet food warmed his nose. The huge ballroom was full of people dancing, playing games, or huddling together in happy conversations. As they passed through the crowd, Tyrion examined each group, hoping to pick out his father. Sargon gestured toward the other end of the ballroom. This way. I think I know where he is. The foursome excused themselves through the throng of party-goers, crossed the room, stopping at a simple door. Sargon opened it for Tyrion. He's up in the tower. Repairing the king's clock. He sent the teen alone up the steps. Tyrion was nervous as he climbed the staircase and contemplated the reunion. He racked his brain for a picture of the man, but it remained blank. A ticking sound grew gradually louder as he ascended, confirming he was approaching the summit of the clock tower. The final step left him at a closed door labeled clock. He gingerly turned the knob. Tyrion saw the back of a sturdy, graying repairman in rolled-up sleeves atop the ladder, addressing the sprockets of a large timepiece with a screwdriver. Tyrion waited below while the man made a final adjustment. He finished, dusted his hands with a clap, hopping quickly off the ladder. That ought to do it, he said brightly, turning toward his guest. His arms flung forward, and the worker gathered in his son with a strong hug. Instantly, Tyrion recognized the friendly arms of his dad. He tried to speak, but couldn't choke out a word. He just rested there for a long minute as the embrace bridged a decade of separation. Eventually, the warm voice of his father simply said, I've missed you so much. He stood Tyrion back in front of him and admired the young man before him. Look at you, Tyrion. You're all grown up. Tyrion blurted out a few simple thoughts about the castle and his journey, but found himself lacking the words to sum up his feelings. They talked amiably while descending the stairs, but as the door opened, the din of the party overwhelmed their chat. Lorena and Thad swarmed them enthusiastically, and the group was whisked into the center of the festivities. The next hour was a blur as Tyrion feasted on delicacies and drank his weight in cider. Thad and Lorena introduced Tyrion to their friends, and the group invited him into some rollicking games, including a marbles competition. He naturally won the contest, putting to use his finely honed skills and capturing a trophy for his effort. In the hubbub, Tyrion lost sight of his father, who had slipped away, likely assigned to a repair task or clean-up duty somewhere in the castle. Tyrion and Thad were getting around to second helpings at the buffet table when a bell rang. Thad turned to Tyrion, his eyes lit with excitement, and explained, It's time for the great gift exchange. For 30 minutes, people mingled with each other, exchanging presents, some running across the ballroom to greet a friend or relative. Lorena and Thad were distracted at times and left Tyrion to visit friends. Sargon stayed with him and introduced him to many new faces, some of whom even had gifts for him. Soon the siblings had returned, and they each offered up a memorable gift. Lorena presented him with an embroidered leather satchel that she sewed herself. Thad gave his brother a handmade gift as well, a paddle carved from a birch limb, and promised Tyrion... When the weather warms up, we can go canoeing on the river. That's the best. When Tyrion presented the pearl to Lorena, he described the battle of wits with Scalabar, in which he nearly lost it. She started to cry when she saw it, but Thad stomped on the moment, soliciting for his gift. Tyrion handed him the dagger 
And the older brother got serious, looking him in the eye with a sincere thank you. Tyrion showed them Acker's tinderbox, and for a moment he worried about his absent friend's safety. His concern was interrupted by a trumpet blast, which silenced the crowd. All eyes turned toward a high platform at the end of the room, where a large regal throne sat empty. An entourage of officials marched ceremoniously across the chamber. Tyrion struggled to get a clear view, but only caught glimpses of the back of a nobleman walking at the end of the procession. It appeared the monarch was strolling through his fans, greeting the crowd with generous handshakes, waves, and hugs and kisses for the young ones. The group finally reached the far end of the room, and a cheer went up as the king ascended to the platform. The crowd was packed so tightly that Tyrion still couldn't get a clear view of the proceedings in the distance. But when a hush fell over the crowd, he was able to hear the king's voice. Welcome, my friends, to the annual Christmas celebration. This event is always my favorite gathering of the year, as it best represents the values that the royal homeland strives to perpetuate. Joy, generosity, and family. Today's party is an especially momentous one. As many of you know, one family in our kingdom was blessed today when they were reunited with a long-lost, kidnapped son. Suddenly, Tyrion felt strong hands clutch his elbows and heave him forward. The lights and faces of the crowd swirled past in a blur as guards lifted him toward the stage. Ladies and gentlemen, I present Tyrion, safely returned to the royal homeland. The guards set the young man down on the platform, facing the sea of partygoers. Sargon the Harvester jogged up the steps and slid in beside him, announcing to the crowd, Tyrion has traveled a long way to be with us, enduring the most dangerous of challenges. He fought a bandit, climbed a mountain in a blizzard, defeated the wizard Scalabar, and escaped the treacherous maze of the thickets. The partygoers murmured with admiration. He deserves to be honored as a man of great accomplishment. The crowd burst into applause. He has been reunited with his family and presented them with hard-won gifts. Take out your gift for your father. Tyrion did so and scanned the crowd, hoping to pick out the repairman in the Sea of Faces. Instead, everyone shifted their attention over his shoulder as Tyrion suddenly realized aloud. My father is the king? He looked behind him and saw the repairman, clad in a dazzling cloak and jeweled crown. A hush fell over the crowd as the king produced a gold key. He moved over to Tyrion and knelt down at his son's feet. He carefully unlocked the rusty locks and gently removed the shackles from his ankles. Tyrion dropped his eyes to the dingy brass crown that he'd won from Scalabar. As the king stood up, Tyrion squeaked out a shy thank you and meekly held out the tattered headband. I was going to give you this, but I think you already have one. The king smiled and lovingly, lovingly took the crown from his son's fingers. Yes, you're right about that. I already have a crown. He polished the crown with the cuff of his robe. The simple act transformed it into a regal, reflective treasure. But Tyrion... You don't have one. The king placed the crown on his son's head. It now fit perfectly. He punctuated the moment with a declaration. Home at last is my son, heir to the royal homeland. The crowd erupted, and the orchestra launched into a fanfare. A wave of love washed over Tyrion as arms swept him into the air, triumphantly skyward, above the crowd of supporters. He looked down to see who was carrying him, and recognized the familiar face of Acker. The beaming guard shouted, Enjoy it. This is your moment. But get your rest tonight. I've got to break out another orphan. Out of prison. And I need your help. Tyrion threw his head back and laughed, relishing the prospect of another great and unexpected family reunion. You know, one of the challenges we had in putting together the series of Christmas Quests is we wanted to tell an original story that our creative team wrote that you got to experience that would give you a 
picturesque vision of what heaven is described in the Bible. What you just heard are words and images that the Bible describes in Revelation and in Matthew of what it looks like to return to heaven. And that Christmas was heaven's first installment where Christmas broke in and God broke into the dungeon of this world and told us we were made for something new. And that on our way from this world to the world that we were made for, with family, with forgiveness, with celebration, with no betrayal, with no darkness, with no gossip, that between this world we were living in and the world we were made from, there would be challenges. There would be difficulty. There would be temptations. There would be sorrows. But all those sorrows God would use at a final culmination at the great gathering in heaven to develop character in us, to honor us, to celebrate us, and we would find out that we have a father we've always wanted. We have a family we've always longed for. And our father would be the king. And we could discover that we were made for royalty. Not when we were looking good, but when we were at our worst, the king went and found us. And if and the writers of the New Testament say, if I could give these people on earth a vision of what it looks like, they would say, whatever I've gone through in this life, it was so worth it to get to this place. You ever had one of those journeys where you say, it was worth it? You're crossing over the marathon line and you think about all those months of training and you're like, this moment, this celebration, this success, it was worth it. All of the training all of the early days, all of the difficulty. It was worth it. It's what heaven says it will be like, even to look at the difficulties in our life now. Let me tell you a story of a woman, a teenage girl. Had a lot of difficulties. She got pregnant out of wedlock, which had her boyfriend wanting to break up with her. Because they were actually betrothed, he was going to divorce her quietly. She had the stigma of everyone looking at her and watching her. She got pregnant. She felt the rejection in the stairs. Then the brutal Roman government was in charge during that time. And they were requiring her while pregnant to make a hundred mile journey. And here she is in the middle of God's will. In God's plan to bring heaven to earth. Suffering ridicule, a possible breakup, the discomfort of walking or maybe even riding a donkey if they could afford it on their way to Bethlehem, in the midst of a brutal Roman government, and in the midst of even when the baby is born, there's a slice, this little sliver of joy, but it's quickly snuffed out by this egomaniacal ruler named Herod who's trying to assassinate her child, and she's got to be on the run. This is the story of Christmas, that heaven came in a little slice But the Christmas family has a pretty horrible Christmas. This is Jesus' Christmas experience. And yet we read the story and there's something in us that says, oh, but this Christmas is going to be perfect for us. Even though Jesus had a lousy first Christmas, we're going to have a perfect one. And we live in this dilemma between the Christmas we want and the Christmas we're experiencing. We work really, really hard to get the perfect gift in hopes that perfect gift will make everything magical. I'm actually convinced every year that I'm going to have a conflict-free family gathering. (laughs) I've never seen one. I've never had one. But there's something in me that this vision of a world where people do get along that still echoes in the midst of this world to say, well, I want to work at least a little bit more to get closer to it. I'm hoping that the magic, the wonder of Christmas can swallow up this year's disappointments and disillusionments. And hurts and pains. And in the middle of this dilemma of wanting something that I've never totally completely seen except in slices, I begin to wonder, is this just false hope? Is this just wishful thinking? I don't want false hope. I want a living hope. A real hope. And that's what Christmas offers. The first installment of heaven and the promise of a heaven to come. Christmas is a living hope. It offers us three things. Very practical, powerful things. It offers us something secure in a world that nothing is secure. 
It offers us a deposit, a first installment of what is to come. And more than that, it's not just a place. Christmas is a person. Because when you find something secure, your fear level goes down. You have confidence. When you find something that's a deposit, somebody puts a deposit on something you're going to buy, you have hope the transaction's going to go through. And when you do a deal, when you do an interaction, not with something, but with someone, it establishes trust. And that's what God sent at Christmas, that we would know of the world to come. Let's look at that, that security first. Peter's writing, and Peter's trying to describe to people going through a very difficult time about the promise of the second installment of heaven. They've already seen the first one with Jesus coming. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy came and found us, broke in, and He has begotten us again, which literally means given us a new birth. So that that new birth that he will give you is a living hope. It's a living hope of the world to come. It's a living hope that you're not alone. It's a living hope that he has a plan for your life. It's a living hope that he will work all things together for good. It's a living reality, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who defeated death to an inheritance, a crown, an heirship, an adoption to the king of the universe. It's incorruptible can't fall apart like everything else we have in this life. It's undefiled. It can't be smudged. It can't be destroyed. It doesn't fade away like the things in this world that increasingly have a lifespan and get worse. What I have for you, what I'm promising for you, is incorruptible, undefiled, doesn't fade away, and it is reserved in heaven for you. It's kept for heaven for you. It is secure. In a world where moth eats away your clothes... In a world where rust takes away your most beautiful trinkets, you can know for sure that there is something secure. And it's secure not by what you do, because then it wouldn't be very secure, because I've got good days. I treat my wife well, and I'm nice to my kids. And then i got days like yesterday where I come in having hung out with my uh, younger son all day, and my wife says, you seem crabby. I thought I was hiding that better. <laughs> that your acceptance to this secure deposit It's not based on what you do, it's based on what he did. And that's why it is kept or reserved in heaven for you. And this reality of a heaven to come, not I hope I'm getting to heaven, I wish I'm getting to heaven, I don't know how I get to heaven. The promise that you know you're going to be in heaven was so practical that Peter and John and the disciples were talked about it all the time. And this is in the first and second century of history. When Roman dictators like Domitian and Trajan began to persecute Christians. Horrible persecution. And they would talk about whatever they take from you. The Roman government can take your life. They can take your family. They can take your body. Yes, they can even take your freedom. But they cannot take what's reserved in heaven for you. It's secure. As you read through history, you find Christians who are thrown into the arena in the midst of wild animals. Covered with pitch and tar and lit on fire. You find them having their possessions stolen, their family stolen. And what's striking about the, the record of history is in the middle of this kind of torment, they would sing hymns of gratitude to God that they were able to participate in the fellowship of His sufferings, they would say. Oh, thank you that I get to suffer for you just a little bit like you suffered for me. Because whatever they take, whatever they destroy... What really matters is reserved and secure in heaven with my heavenly Father. When you know you have something secure, it changes how you interact. You're no longer worried all the time. You're no longer driven all the time. I've got to do more to make up for. There's rest. There's peace. There's courage. What would you do if you knew... You had a secure future. What would be different? Would you worry less? If you knew that you had your real treasures, what really mattered, secured in heaven, would you be a little more generous now with the stuff that fades away? Would you not be so upset about a car that gets a rust spot or a scratch on it because at the end of the day, this isn't your real treasure? Oh, you like it, you want to keep it up nice, but it's not what really matters. 
Would you be more courageous? Would you take more risks in this world if you knew the next world was secure? Maybe we'd stop putting our whole identity in things that are insecure. Because did you know everything in your life will fail you? Except this secure gift. We all love marriage. Marriage is a great idea. It was God's idea. And yet if you put your full weight into your marriage, you'll suffocate that because that other person cannot fully bring you sustainable happiness. Your marriage will fail you. Your health may have a certain peak health. But we also know that our health will fail us. Our approval. We like people to like us. I like people to like me. And yet, that will fail you because you will eventually disappoint yourself. You'll disappoint other people. All these things are not secure. They're not a way to build your identity. They're not a way to build your security because they're not secure. Even religion and good works is very insecure because one day you're good, the next day you're bad. Don't build your identity on what you do or don't do. Don't build your identity of whether or not your kids obey or don't obey. There's days I feel like a lousy dad. A lot of them. Man, I'm just not connecting the way I should. I'm not interacting the way I should. I'm not prioritizing. Oh my God, i got so much energy going here. I'm not putting it there. Those who found the security in heaven were able to find a place of rest. And now they could be a dad. They could be a husband. They could be a, a, a leader in their community. But it's coming from a place of rest not a place of anxiety. Even Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is sort of a, a dreary read uh, all about the different martyrs through history, but it tells the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was an incredibly moral man, incredibly religious man. We'll talk about it in about three months in our series Custom Home that's coming up. But he comes to Jesus one day and says, how do I get into the new kingdom? And Jesus says the f- same thing Peter says. Just like you're born into this world, you need to be reborn into my world the world to come and here's the thing about being born it's not something you do it's something done to you in the same way that somebody gave birth to you into this world somebody god needs to give you a new birth you're to be born from above born again rebirth spiritually to the world to come so it's not something you do it's something you ask somebody to do for you well nicodemus got this new birth with the promise of the security of heaven and here's what happened it was so powerful nicodemus Gave up a lot of power because he was a follower of Jesus. He was persecuted in horrific ways. In fact, Domitian will eventually kill him as a martyr. And this new birth, it gives him such promise of of what really matters, what's really to come. He lives an incredibly generous life. Kindness and help, securing people, rescuing people. But ultimately that new birth led to a courageous death under the evil Domitian emperor of Rome. Because he had something secure and it gave him confidence that whatever he lost in this life, whatever he gave up in this life was nothing compared to what could not be taken away. Christmas is a living hope for a second reason. It's not just because it's something secure. It's also a deposit. Here he goes on to say this. It's very interesting what he says in the next part of the verse. Who we are being kept by the power of God through faith, not by works. You believe this and he bursts you. He, He gives you a new identity. For salvation, for deliverance, ready to be revealed. There's a world still to come that's going to fix all that's broken in our world. But it's not here yet. It's in the last time. Now in this, you can greatly rejoice that that's going to happen. Evil will be punished. Good will be rewarded. All the things you went through, God has noticed and he will reward you for it. He will show you the purpose he had in it. In this you greatly rejoice, though now just for a little while. Whatever you're going through, however difficult this life is, it's just a little while compared to eternity. If need be, you've been grieved by various trials. But here's the thing. God's got a purpose. He's going to work out a purpose in the midst of your difficulty. He will show the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold. In other words, developing character like faith and courage and kindness that's what God is going to use this time in this world to do, to produce the things that really matter. So you go into the next life really having dug for gold while you're here in the midst of difficulty. It's more precious faith is than gold that perishes. Though it's tested by fire now, it may be found to be honored, crowns given out in heaven, glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, the second installment of heaven. 
Now, the book of Ephesus written by Paul says something similar. He says, now, God wants you to know. He wants to give you something, a deposit now, so you know it's really going to happen. That's just wishful thinking. How do I know? Look at the word he uses in Ephesians. In him, Jesus, when you trust in him, you get sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of our purchased possession. A lot of religious words there. Let me tell you what he's saying. When you choose to ask Christ to be your forgiver and leader, at that moment, God sends his Holy Spirit to live in you right then and there as a deposit and a guarantee of things to come. To which you're like, Casper the friendly ghost comes and lives inside me. The ghost in the machine. I'm suddenly possessed. I saw the exorcist. I don't think I want a Holy Spirit in me. That's weird. Well, it might be weird, or maybe it's a guarantee. I remember when I bought my first boat with my father. We, we drove round and round and round. We found this boat at this used car dealer, and we met him. We didn't have the cash on hand, but we wanted to know we were going to buy it. So we pulled out a deposit. We said, here's 400 bucks. We're going to bring the other 1100 We come back tomorrow. We gave a guarantee, a deposit of what was to come. And what did it do? It gave him hope we were going to go through with the deal. It gave him hope this is really going to happen. It gave him hope because of what this deposit now, there was the promise of more money to come. It's the same idea given here. God gives you a little piece of heaven now. It's the difference between being religious and going to church and being a follower of Christ. You start reading the Bible and there's someone talking back to you. So that, that sounds weird, Chad. That sounds like, well, that's the only way I can describe it is it's no longer a book or an action or an external behavior. It's someone is with you. And that someone says, you are now a child of God. And this little deposit of heaven is the promise, the guarantee, the deposit that you know for sure you're going to heaven. Because he's already given you a piece of it now. That's the word he uses. It's a guarantee that you are a purchased possession by God. And here's the thing. When you meet somebody who has that, it's noticeable. They're not a religious person. They don't just have a neat personality. You go, there's a confidence there. There's a joy there. There's something that transcends their circumstances. Even in the midst of difficulty, they have something I want and need. Lee Strobel found this. He wrote a book called The Case for Easter. He's written a lot of books, The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, The Case for the Creator, and The Case for New Titles. That's what he really needs. <laughs> this one's a little pamphlet called The Case for Christmas, and he describes his journey from an agnostic or even atheist at that point news reporter for the Chicago Times to becoming a follower of Christ. He said he was trying to do a, a human interest story, a nice story about Christmas, and he heard about this family living in one of the slums in Chicago, very close to where I went to college. As he went to visit with them, he was going to visit with a woman. Her name was, uh, her last name was Delago, and her first name was Perfecta. She was 60 years old. As he walked into the apartment, he was shocked by just the barrenness. No furniture, hardly any food. He met her two granddaughters that she was raising, 13 and 11. They had one set of clothes and one sweater to share between the two of them. And on their way to school in those Chicago winters, they would actually trade off wearing the sweater on their way to the bus stop. As he saw just the barrenness and the poverty and the circumstances that would call out for despair, he was struck in his interview how much Perfecta spoke of how much God loved her, how God was taking care of her, how God had her present and future in his hands. He's looking around like, what world are you looking at? She had this deposit, this security that even in the midst of the darkest times, she knew that God cared about her. He went home to write this article. And as he was doing it, he began to reflect in his own journal. He wrote this in his journal. As I sat at my desk on Christmas Eve, I continued to wrestle with the irony of the situation. Here was a family that had nothing but faith and yet seemed happy. While I had everything I needed materially but lacked faith. And inside I felt as empty and as barren as their apartment. He writes this article that morning, and he comes out in the Chicago Tribune or sometimes, and people are just impacted by the story. They begin to send flowers and drop by and put food and clothes. 
And so on Christmas Eve, he decides to go and visit. He's just heard about this outpouring from his article. So he stops by. As he arrives, he sees Perfecta. He sees all the stuff gathered around. He sees the two grandkids. And they are taking the stuff that's been delivered to them, and they're walking it around, giving it to different people in the apartment complex. He's shocked by this. If I had so little and got this payload, I'd be hoarding it for a tough day, saving it for tomorrow. As he talked to Perfecta, he wrote this in the book, he was so shocked by this attitude. She said, they were getting ready to give away much of their newfound wealth. And I asked her, why? And she replied, well, our neighbors are still in need. We cannot have plenty while they have nothing. This is what Jesus would want us to do. We did nothing to deserve this. It's a gift from God. But it's not as great as gift. No, no. We'll celebrate that gift tomorrow. He is so shocked by their faith in the midst of difficulty and their generosity in the face of difficulty and the attitude in the midst of it. He goes, there's something to this. This isn't just a neat personality. This person has something, a little deposit of heaven in them that I want as an agnostic reporter. And having been convinced in his heart, he began to investigate whether or not Christianity was true. He had all the obstacles over the years. He wanted to look through the problem of evil. Is there really evidence for it? Is this just a nice story? Did it really happen? In this particular book, he investigates lots of claims, 10 or 11 of them. I'll just give you two. First thing he says is, was there really a census? He'd heard for years skeptics say it's ridiculous that the Romans would have a census. Everyone had to go to their hometown. That is unheard of. That would be so cumbersome, so unrealistic. It just couldn't be done, and it wasn't done. So as he investigated in the book, The Case for Christmas, he talked to a scholar who said, not only did it happen, but we have evidence outside the Bible from other places in the Roman Empire that confirm this. He pulled out one from Egypt. Well, the Egyptian uh, perfect says this, Gaius Zivius Maximus, Maximus, the perfect of Egypt says, seeing that the time had come for the house to house census, it is necessary to compel all those who, for any cause whatsoever, residing out of their provinces, to return to their own homes, that they may both carry out the regular order of the census and may also attend diligently to the cultivation of their allotments. Oh my goodness, it's not just the Bible says it, but other non-religious documents confirm it. What about Nazareth? He'd heard for years, Nazareth doesn't exist. It didn't exist for years later. There's no way Jesus came from Nazareth. He began to investigate that. It was one of the strong arguments for why Christmas didn't exist. And sure enough, he came to a guy named jo Dr. James Strange. Sounds like a sci-fi. Dr. James Strange from the University of South Florida says, oh yeah, there's lots of evidence that this indeed did happen and that Nazareth did exist. In fact, he says, Nazareth was a very small area, only about 60 acres, maximum population about 480. But at 70 AD, the temple gets destroyed, if you remember your Roman history. At that point, all the priests are out of a job. What am I going to do? I, there's no temple anymore. So we actually have written documentation that these different groups or families or groupings of priests had to go someplace. And one of those archaeological pieces of manuscript we found says that a group of priests, one of the group, were relocated, and one of them was registered as having been moved to Nazareth. The Nazareth was very much in existence during that time, and there's archaeological and manuscript evidence to support it. So he's convinced with his heart he wants what's in these people's lives, and now he's convinced in his mind that it might be true. And he begins his intellectual and emotional journey to finding the God of the Bible, the deposit of heaven. So here's the question that he had to wrestle with. I think we need to as well. If what happened in the first installment of heaven, the certainty of Christmas past, if that really happened, and we can back up that evidence, because for hundreds of years he said it was going to happen, and then it happened. We can study it in history. The confidence in Christmas past becomes the confidence in Christmas future. Because if all those predictions came true then, and he told us there's another installment of heaven coming, the evidence from the first coming can give us faith to the promises of the second. 
And that's what he's saying here. This deposit is to remind you that until the coming of salvation, until he returns, as you go through difficulty and grief and various trials, God is working in the midst of it. God is working in the midst of the challenges of it. And we put this series together three or four months ago. As we were doing it, one of the guys in our creative team's father was passing away. And so we just talked real practically about how does heaven help when your dad's passing away? How does it really matter? It's one thing to see it written in Scripture, yeah, you know, find joy in, in various trials. What does that feel like or look like? He described how his dad, in his increasing or decreasing health, lost the ability to use you know, his feet the way he used to, his personality, his energy level. It was becoming a shell of the man that he knew. We talked about the promise of heaven is that when you get to heaven, you get a new body. What would it look like that his dad would only have his old body, but a better-than-ever body? And the deposit that he knew Jesus and knew Jesus defeated death and got a new body was the promise that just as Jesus' body was brutally destroyed and got a brand new one so that his father would have one. It filled him with real hope. It was also the idea that if God could use something like the cross and all of its brutality to bring about his ultimate purpose of defeating death, then God can use whatever difficulty you're going through, that your father's going through, that your family's going through this Christmas. He will work all things together for good because if he can use an old rugged cross to bring about his purpose, he can use yours. Because isn't one of the biggest challenges when you're going through difficulty, you're saying this just seems so meaningless. I don't mind meaningful suffering. Well, there's a purpose to this. I'm training for the marathon. But it's meaningless suffering that takes away your hope. The promise of Christmas, the promise of heaven is that even if you can't see it, even if you don't fully understand it, even if you're like, there's no way a purpose could come out of this. I'm telling you, if you and I were looking at a guy bloodied on a cross, we'd say, nothing good can come from this. And yet this old bloodied cross changed the world. And that gives you hope that God can use the suffering and the challenges. And more than that, that God takes notes. The little things that you say nobody's noticing, the sacrifice here, the patience I had with my spouse, the way I put up with my prodigal son, the way I'm holding my temper, all those things that you think don't matter or you wonder if they matter, God is going to reward you for those. That is the hope of heaven. It's the promise. It's the promise of a new body. It's the promise that all suffering will ultimately have meaning and God will use it to accomplish greater purposes, to develop faith that lasts for, for the world. And here's how that gets practical. There's an old uh, general in the Civil War. As the men were about to start putting in their stakes, he would turn to them. He'd say, all right, guys, just so you know, we're not staying here very long. This isn't like a stay here for a few months. So as they were about to put up their tents, the general would, would shout out, don't pound your stakes too far in. We're moving out in the morning. Which reminded them that cold, icy, frozen dirt that you have to pound your way in. Hey, we're moving tomorrow morning. Don't pound them too far in. And Jesus comes to us and says, hey, don't pound your stakes too far into this world. You're moving out in the morning. It's going to be about a little while compared to eternity. So don't think you're going to get all the meaning you ever needed out of your relationships in life. Don't pound your stakes too far in because you're going to be disappointed. Don't think that a huge bank account, as good as it is, as nice as it is, don't think you're going to be able to pound your ultimate sense of security into money. Don't think of that bucket list. It's great to have a bucket list. But don't pound your stakes too far into the bucket list because you're going to have plenty of time. This life is but a sliver. Relax a bit. Because when you pound your stakes into a marriage, into a career, you end up destroying that thing because it cannot sustain the weight of your full identity and your full purpose. And the hope of heaven is I like the good things in this world, but I'm not going to put my full identity into those things. I'm not going to pound them so far in. And because I'm going to focus on the next world with its values, I want to apply the values of the kingdom to come to the life I live in now. C.S. Lewis says it this way. The great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelists who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were preoccupied with heaven. Which is why Christmas is a third thing. It's amazing that he swaps here. He doesn't begin to describe like other authors do, the jasper and the crowns and the gold and the, all the different images of the place. He now switches and talks about Christmas being a person. He says this, Whom 
whom having not seen, you love. Like our orphan, he's never seen his dad, but he loves him on this journey. Though now you do not see him, yet you're believing. You're rejoicing with joy inexpressible, full of glory, which means full of weight, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Another way to say it is you love him, even though you have not seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him. You rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. So what heaven mostly is, is the joy of meeting a person that you know, but you haven't seen. What does glorious, inexpressible joy feel like? You ever had somebody that you know, but you haven't seen for a while and you have a reunion? You know those moments? You're at the airport and you're waiting, right there at CVG. You're waiting for everybody to come out before you go back up the escalator. As you're waiting, you can see it all around, people waiting. And you've been waiting because it's been six months or a year since you've seen your son who's been serving in the military. And you're waiting because it's Christmas. And you believe he's alive, you've heard he's alive, but you're waiting. And suddenly those doors come open. And there's your son, and there's your daughter who served, and you run up, and they throw their arms around you, and you around them, and the joy. Other people are smiling now, watching your joy, the joy of being reunited with somebody that, that you've been separated from for a while. For this Christmas, we're not going to see my daughter until January. It's our first Christmas without my daughter at college and because of her work schedule, and so we won't see her until the first week of January. And and I can't wait to drive to CVG and, and have my daughter who I've not seen. And the joy of being reunited. The joy of telling stories. The joy of how have you been. The joy of seeing her face again. I will be filled with just a piece of the inexpressible joy. It's last year or maybe this year. You are rearranging your schedule in a way to make sure you can get home to be with grandpa or your father or your mom for what might be your last Christmas. Or maybe this year you did it last year and this that was your last Christmas. And through all the challenges and all the difficulty of making it happen, you were so glad to say the things you were able to say, to see his smile one more time, to hear that story he tells a thousand times and you heard it again. And you got filled up with joy. And over the last six months you had to go to a funeral. And at that funeral, you got filled with joy in the midst of sorrow as you told stories, as you stood up before your friends and family, and you got to hear stories of, of your dad and your mom and what they did, and tears were rolling down your face as you laughed together at his idiosyncrasies and his moments. And in the midst of sorrow, there was joy of this man, this woman that you love so much. It's the inexpressible joy of walking your daughter down the aisle. But the night before, you're at a rehearsal dinner where you stood up and gave a toast, and you worked on that toast to try and express in just a few minutes what spent 18, 25 years to describe your love for this daughter, this love for your son, that you're about to hand them over to someone that you think you can trust. The joy, the emotions filled up. If you take all those different images and moments of joy and put them together, you're not even close to what the Bible describes as the reunion of meeting the one you believe in, though you've never seen. And when you get to heaven, it's going to be filled with laughter and stories, and powerfully God's going to connect the dots and say, you know why that happened? It wasn't that I intended it, but when that bad thing happened, I used it to do this, and I used it to do this, and I used it to do this, and God's going to connect all the dots for you in the midst of the joy and the laughter and the stories, and the finally I get what it's all about, and suddenly someone's going to step into the room, and it's Him! It's not a place, it's Him! The one who orchestrated it all! It's Jesus. And he says, I repaired you. I'm repairing the world. I fixed this place. I orchestrated this great party, this great reunion, this great, as the Bible describes it, wedding feast, this giant party for eternity. I orchestrated it all because of my love for you. I burst into this world through the incarnation to tell you that there was another world. And I gave you a way, a security, a promise that you could know what was to come. And once you get there, you say it's worth it. In the meantime, you can only imagine what it might be. I want to invite the band to come up as we ask one last question. 
What would you do now if you were confident in the future? Would you forgive more? I think I would. If whatever grievance I have is just a sliver compared to the real timeline, I think I might forgive more. If my real riches were secured in heaven, you know I think I might do? I think I might be more generous with my money, more generous with my time. I might decide not to give in to fear so much because I'm scared of something that only lasts for a sliver compared to the joy I have that will be everlasting. I might be a little more patient in this world because of how patient God's been to me. I might be a little more compassionate in this world because of how compassionate God's been to me. The world to come begins to flow through me here and now and I find myself with a vision of heaven imagining a place where I don't run out of time. Imagine a place where there's no misunderstandings between friends, no misunderstandings between spouses or kids, where there's no sorrow, where there's no pain. What's wonder and magic and imagination? What do you imagine? The Bible tells us to imagine, think about what it would be like to be in that place to meet that person. Let's pray together. Maybe you want to ask God for that gift that's secure in that deposit this morning. You just do it this way. God, I want the ultimate gift this Christmas. I want the gift of the deposit that is to come. Place in me a little piece of eternity. A little place, piece of heaven. I believe you came. I believe you died for my inadequacies. And I need you to give me a new birth into the world to come. Help me to live out the imagination of those values here on earth. To spread your kingdom come and your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for being here for our series. We look forward to seeing you guys for our brand new uh, Christmas series. Uh, Christmas Eve tickets are available out by the fireplace. Thanks for being here today.